Well, again, a happy new year to you. Welcome to Community Bible Church. I'm Pastor Oliver Jones. It's a joy to have you with us. I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to Joshua 5. Joshua 5. We've been celebrating Jesus' birthday here at CBC for three weeks, and we're going to do it again today as we slowly work our way through John's prologue and his gospel. His central theme in the prologue of his gospel is Jesus is God. This means that Jesus is co-equal, co-existent, and co-eternal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. John's desire in his gospel is for his audience to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing that they may have life in abundance in his name. Life now, life eternal. So in his prologue, John tackles the tension that exists in our minds when we try to reconcile the impossible, the improbable, the absurd, the inconceivable thought. Was Jesus a man or was Jesus God? How can he be both? How can the God of the universe be born into flesh? Certainly our birth is the beginning of our own existence, correct? We would say yes. So then doesn't Jesus' birth mean that Jesus is created? Doesn't that mean that at his birth, that's when he came into existence? Friends, that's not the case at all. And that's just the point. Jesus' birthday is our greatest blessing because John 1.14 is true. And the Word, that is the Word of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the Son of God who took on flesh in order to redeem the lives of broken, sin-sick people like us. It's no surprise to us that Jesus' birthday changed the world. When the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, the world was forced to behold righteousness, purity, perfection, love, mercy, grace, and truth. And the effect on human society as a result of Jesus' birthday cannot be overstated. Children gained status. Women gained status. The slave gained status. Because all of mankind call, was called on to repent and to believe that Jesus is the ultimate authority and that to him every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The cultural conscience had been assaulted by Jesus' righteous life and commands. And after Jesus ascended to heaven, the church continued to show the world that all men everywhere have been called to repent for their sins and live righteous lives in obedience to Christ. Because the church continually presents righteousness into a sin-sick world, the church was assaulted and persecuted just like Jesus until Roman emperors Constantine and Theodosius ended the full assault of the Roman Empire against Christianity and embraced the church in the fourth century. Unfortunately, due to the sinfulness of men, it would not be long before the church and the government leaders were working together to maintain political and spiritual control over the masses of people under their care. Enter the Dark Ages. Enter the Roman Catholic system. When Roman Catholicism dominated Europe and the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ was covered over by corrupt spiritual leaders in the church who became happily entangled with the political interests of the ruling elites. One of the greatest illustrations of the corruption of the church takes place at the end of the Dark Ages in the Medici family in Florence, Italy, whose power came from banking and expanded to politics and even into the church through the 14th to the 18th centuries. They were truly the Medici family, an Italian mafia-type family. Take, for instance, Lorenzo de' Medici, who was born on New Year's Day, January 1st, 1449. According to the editors of Encyclopedia Britannica, Lorenzo de' Medici was known as Lorenzo the Magnificent. The Florentine statesman and arts patron is considered the most brilliant of the Medici family. He ruled Florence for some 20 years in the 15th century, during which time he brought stability to the region. In the field of arts, he was the one who notably advanced the careers of Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci. He also advanced the careers of his family members, especially his own son, Giovanni who would later become Pope Leo X, the great troubler of Martin Luther and the Reformation. In total, four Roman Catholic popes came from the Medici family. What does that tell you about the Roman Catholic system? It also tells you something about the Medicis. They had nothing to do, these, these popes, their, their becoming popes in this family had nothing to do with their Christ-honoring spiritual influence. To the contrary, the Medicis were made popes because of their family's political and social power and influence over Florence and over the Roman Catholic Church. The Medicis thought of the church as a great money-making business, the greatest money-making scheme in the world. They used the Catholic Church of Jesus Christ for greedy gain and what 
the King James Version calls filthy lucre. Lorenzo de' Medici had no genuine regard for worshiping Jesus in spirit and truth. He knew about Jesus Christ. He lived in light of the miraculous incarnation, the perfect life, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus, and yet never did Lorenzo de' Medici bow down and worship Jesus and repent. The same is not true for General Joshua, who was called into a position of power and authority in the Middle East over a nation of people who were without land, without money, and without resources. General Joshua knew nothing of the luxury of the life that Lorenzo de' Medici made for himself. General Joshua grew up in slavery in Egypt and wandered the desert around Mount Sinai for 40 years. And upon the death of Moses, General Joshua was found to be the Lord's humble servant who would lead, guide, and shepherd his people Israel. Where do we see a picture of General Joshua's humility, worship, and obedience before the Lord Jesus Christ, which is, is such a stark contrast to the arrogant, power-grabbing, self-serving leadership and life of Lorenzo de' Medici. You're in Joshua 5. Look at verse 13. At 5.13 in Joshua, General Joshua comes face-to-face with the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Joshua records the moment saying, Now it happened when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, uh, uh, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? I'm not sure which. He said to him, no. Rather, I indeed come now as commander of the host of Yahweh. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to his slave? The commander of the host of Yahweh said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. In chapter 6, Yahweh goes on to command Joshua to have all of Israel march around Jericho six times and then seven times on the seventh day. This was Yahweh's victory plan for the defeat of Jericho for Israel. Brothers and sisters, did the Israelites circle Jericho seven or 13 times? Did they all cry out in unison? Did the walls of Jericho fall down, just as Yahweh told Joshua that they would? Friends, who was standing there in front of General Joshua? Who is the commander of the host of Yahweh? Who is the man who slipped by General Joshua's secret service detail and spoke to the leader of Israel face to face? This is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. Whether you see Jesus in person or you do not see him, the expectation of God found in the Bible is that you bow down and worship Jesus Christ because he is God. You need to have faith to worship Jesus now, even though you've never seen him. If you are given sight of him, friend, you will bow down and worship, just like Joshua did. Whether you are General Joshua in the wilderness of Sinai in 1400 B.C., or Lorenzo de' Medici in Florence, Italy in 1480, God's command is for all men to worship and obey his son, Jesus Christ, because Jesus is God. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. I have been laboring the point that Jesus is God because John is going out of his way in the first 18 verses of his gospel to declare that Jesus is God. He is eternally God, chapter 1, verse 1. He is the creator God, chapter 1, verse 3. He is the life and light of all men, verse 4. He is the word of God made flesh, verse 14, which we spent three weeks discussing. In John 1, 14, we see Jesus' birthday party. The text basically says, Happy birthday, Jesus. It's an incarnation celebration of the uniqueness of the Son of God. Leon Morris says, The prologue concludes with a little section underlining the uniqueness of Christ. Jesus' uniqueness we discovered last week in chapter 1, verse 14, while beholding the glory of Jesus' incarnation, where John calls Jesus the monogamous, the unique Son of God who is our Father. Monogamous is translated in your Bibles, many of them, only begotten. But it means one and only, unique or matchless. John is using monogamous, unique, to merge together two seemingly opposable and irreconcilable thoughts. Jesus gave existence to everything, and Jesus came into existence in the flesh. Our minds don't want to do it. Our minds don't want to put these thoughts together. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem possible. It shouldn't happen. 
like the time that my friend told me to put mustard on the outside of my toasted peanut butter and jelly sandwich. It shouldn't happen, but it did happen, and it was good. Or, or like the, the internet influencer who said, hey, pour milk into your Coke. It's great. It's the big thing that's happening in Birmingham, Alabama. Don't do that. We'll have to disown you. <laughs> Friends, the inconceivable was conceived. The impossible was realized. Happy birthday, Jesus. Truly, he is the God-man. Let's read about the God-man now from the whole of John's prologue and direct our thoughts to the uniqueness and the blessings of Jesus' birthday. From verse 14 through verse 18. We'll settle our time down in verse 15 today, but let's read the whole of the prologue together now where John says in John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. There was a man, having been sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. There was the true light, which, coming into the world, enlightens everyone. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and those who were his own, they did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. But they were born spiritually of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, the unique one of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has been ahead of me, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, Jesus has explained him. Well, it is here in John's prologue from Jesus' unique, one-of-a-kind birthday in John 1.14, all the way through verse 18, that John offers six incarnation celebration realities that make us marvel at Jesus' humility and glory. It is the case here in the text that John presents six heavenly blessings of Jesus' birthday which reveal the grace and the glory of God. Now, what six heavenly blessings of Jesus' birthday make us marvel at his humility, grace, and glory? Well, after weeks of unwrapping our heavenly blessing in the text one at a time for the last three weeks, I decided to give all six of these heavenly birthday blessings of Jesus today to you to celebrate his birthday last week. It seems fitting since last week was Christmas for you to have all six blessings and they're even in the text of your bulletin. You can see them there now. You're welcome. Not to mention, I don't want you forgetting about the blessings that we've already discussed as all three of the first, the first three of the six blessings, the heavenly blessings, are found in verse 14 alone. We'll add one today in verse 15. And so you see there in the text of your note sheet the heavenly blessings. Our heavenly birthday blessings from Jesus are, number one, Jesus' humble incarnation, verse 14, and the word became flesh. Second, we see Jesus' relational habitation, verse 14 says, and he dwelt among us. Third, we see Jesus' glorious revelation, verse 14 says, and we beheld his glory. Today, we will see number four, Jesus' scheduled gestation, verse 15. In the weeks to come, we will see number five, Jesus' exquisite salvation in verses 16 and 17. And we will conclude our six heavenly blessings study from Jesus' birthday with number six, Jesus' divine explanation in verse 18. We'll do well to cover verse 15 alone today and consider Jesus' sovereignty and eternality. Both are clearly seen in John's explanation that Jesus existed before his birth. His in utero experience was highly intentional, deliberate, 
calculated, premeditated in the mind of God. When did you last consider, friend, the sovereign details of Jesus' birth arrival? That specifically, he was born six months after John the Baptist. What does that mean to you? Why is that important to us? Our study this morning must narrow down to point number four in your notes and a very intentional look at the sovereign control of the eternal word of God over the details of his own birth. Which brings us to number four in your notes, the fourth of six heavenly blessings of Jesus' birthday. Number four, Jesus' scheduled gestation. Yes, it is the case I have too much time in my But you have here in your notes, Jesus' gestation. The fourth of six heavenly blessings of Jesus' birthday. Friends, do you know that Jesus is sovereignly in control of every detail in our lives, just like he was in his own life? Nothing escapes the notice of our Father in heaven or of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single detail, they matter to him. He's in charge. He's in control of them. Three years after the birth of Lorenzo de' Medici on January 1st, 1449 in Florence, Italy, a child was born 102 miles away in Ferrara, Italy. 102 miles is the distance between Spokane and Sandpoint, just for reference. It's not that far away. The child born in Ferrara, Italy in 1452, three years later, would grow up to become a Roman Catholic priest who demanded reforms in the Roman Catholic Church before the Protestant Reformation, which kicked off in 1517. Nick Needham says, Girolamo Savonarola was appointed prior of San Marco, a Dominican convent in Florence, Italy. His preaching in Florence was so popular that it gave him almost complete power over the city, especially after its ruling family, the Medici family, fled from a French invasion force in 1494. Savonarola's popularity was not because his sermons flattered people, not in the slightest. No one denounced sin or warned of divine judgment as sternly as this Dominican friar did. Girolamo Savonarola powerfully preached the word of God and with it ushered in moral and political reforms in Florence, which caused many to compare his Florence, Italy, with Calvin's Geneva. The Medicis and the papacy did at last have their way with Girolamo's life. He was excommunicated, arrested, tortured, and he was promptly burnt at the stake in May on the 23rd, 1498. But Girolamo Savonarola died a martyr of our faith who believed and preached the sovereignty of God's grace and salvation. And for this reason, and the fact that he defied the Pope and paid for his defiance with his life, Girolamo Savonarola is considered by Martin Luther and many others to be a forerunner of the Reformation. Girolamo was born three years after Lorenzo de' Medici on purpose by God to counteract all of the evil the Medici family was concocting in Florence, Italy. The point is this. The timing of our existence is highly intentional and controlled by Jesus, who is eternal. Further still, Jesus controlled the details of his entrance into this world as a man. This is exactly what is recorded and reported by the Apostle John and John the Baptist. When we read in John 1.15, John says, John the Baptist bore witness about Jesus and cried out saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has been ahead of me, for he existed before me. On the one hand, you could call this a summary of John's inferiority, but John's humble inferiority is not the point of these words. The Apostle John's aim is to highlight the Baptist summary of Jesus' eternality in the words, He existed before me. This is a comment about the intentional scheduling of Jesus' gestation. It would be the case that Jesus would arrive six months after John the Baptist on purpose. Donald Barnhouse says, the history of every other human being begins at birth. But the Lord Jesus Christ exists eternally as the second person of the Godhead. Before he was born at Bethlehem, he lived, as we saw in Joshua chapter 5 just earlier. Pastor John MacArthur says, the reference here, as in John chapters, ch chapter 1 verses 1 and 2, is to Jesus' eternal preexistence. 
Jesus, the expected one, came after John in time. He was born six months later and began his public ministry after John began his. John the Baptist, says Pastor John, was acknowledging Jesus' preeminence. The thought is, me, then him, but him before me. We were introduced by the Apostle John to John the Baptist in chapter 1, verse 6. John the Baptist was birthed into this world on a mission, having been sent from God. John is described as a martyreo in the text, a testifier, a witness, someone who will commend, speak well of, or vouch for, in this case, vouch for Jesus. John did his job very effectively. You'll remember that Matthew records that Jesus thought about John the Baptist some very high praise in verse 11 of chapter 11 in Matthew where Jesus said, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And so I would ask you the question this morning, what made John the Baptist great? Certainly it was not the fact that he was born before Jesus. Our world, both now and 2,000 years ago, is a world that gives honor to age and historical chronology. Even the Lord, through the scripture, places favor on the firstborn son. Birth order matters significantly to Jacob and Esau and many others in scripture. And yet here, John is saying, my six-month birth order advantage over Jesus means nothing in the way of my honor. My birth means glory in fulfilled prophecy. My birth means glory in the fact that I am the forerunner of Christ. Leon Morris says, in antiquity, it was widely held that chronological priority meant superiority. D.A. Carson says, in a society where age and precedence bestowed peculiar honor, that might have been taken by superficial observers to mean that John the Baptist was greater than Jesus. Not so, insists the Baptist. In an unusual and emphatic expression, John says, in reference to me, Jesus was first. Some of your translations report that John said, Jesus has a higher rank than I in the NASB, or he ranks before me in the ESV. The NIV says, he has surpassed me. Or, in the King James, Jesus is preferred before me. John's point, friends, is not that Jesus simply surpasses him or should be preferred before him. His point is Jesus' preexistence. You need to hold on to this notion that John is removing any perceived priority from his person or his ministry, and he is unquestionably, unreservedly, assigning absolute priority to Jesus' person to Jesus' mission and his ministry, because for John the Baptist, as should be the case for you and I, Jesus Christ is eternally God made into human flesh, a reality that our minds don't want to reconcile with, but nevertheless, fact. John is commenting on Jesus' preeminence, just like he did in John 1.26. You see it there in the text, John 1.26, when the apostle John records that John the Baptist said, I baptized with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. This one is he who comes after me, of whom I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. John was great, friends, because John knew that he was speaking about Yahweh's Messiah. He knew that he was the forerunner who was supposed to speak about Emmanuel, God with us. He was not merely talking about Messiah with a few relatives in a quiet home over eggnog. John was an evangelist who took his message to thousands of people all around Jerusalem and Judea. The Apostle John reports that John the Baptist cried out, which comes from the Greek verb krazo, which means to call out or to shout or to exclaim. Ed Klink says krazo is not used for emotional or irrational cries, but with a special sense for inspired speech like the speech that we see from Jesus in John 7:28, when John reports that Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, you both know me and know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. Krazo is a special pleading, which John and Jesus did with the same message. Jesus is God. Now, Jesus is God is the right message for Jesus because Jesus is God. He had the right message. But where did John the Baptist learn to cry out with the right message that Jesus is God? Who taught John about Jesus' scheduled gestation? Who taught John about his own personal important participation in the ministry of Jesus Christ? 
Answer? His parents. Zechariah and Elizabeth. The Holy Spirit. And Isaiah the prophet. Luke records in Luke 1.6 that John's parents were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and righteous requirements of the Lord. So righteous were John's parents that the Lord saw fit to send the angel Gabriel to speak directly with Zechariah in the temple when he was performing his priestly duty. Luke 1.15 records the promise of the Lord through the angel Gabriel to Zechariah that his soon-to-be coming son, John, will serve a great purpose for the Lord. As such, Gabriel said, and he will not drink any wine or strong drink, and he, your son, John, will be filled with the Holy Spirit while he is yet in his mother's womb. Luke 1.15. Filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. What are the implications of that verse on abortion? Just a thought. John was predestined by God for salvation. Friends, he was saved in utero. Salvation that was given to him in the power of the Holy Spirit while he was still in Elizabeth's womb. John's salvation and the filling of the Holy Spirit caused him to love God's word, to treasure it in his heart, to understand it in his mind, and to speak boldly about it with his mouth. Look at John 1.22, where we see that John the Baptist had been studying Isaiah the prophet. John the Baptist's ministry was bold and confrontational, especially when it came to the religious elite. In John 1.22, the Jewish religious elite are demanding that John answer their questions. The apostle John reports in John 1.22, Therefore they said to him, Who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. John the Baptist had no hesitation, friends, no reservation at all, quoting Isaiah 40, verse 3, and giving an interpretation of the passage that declared boldly, I'm the forerunner. John effectively is saying, look, guys, God promised to send a Messiah and a messenger ahead of Messiah. Messiah is here. He's come. I'm the messenger, the forerunner. I'm the one who goes before him. Isaiah's prophecy is being fulfilled right now in front of your face, through me. So repent and be baptized and pay attention to the guy that comes right after me. Turn your Bibles to Acts 2.22. Acts 2.22. This message of John is what makes John the Baptist so great. He's been saved by God. He is obedient to the salvation that was placed onto him. He loves scripture. He has studied the Old Testament. He quotes it. He knows the message and the promises. His faith is bold, strong, full of truth. What makes John's faith bold, strong? What makes John obedient to his calling and commissioning by God? What causes him to trust that Jesus existed before him how can he boldly, faithfully preach Jesus' pre-existence and eternality? How can he preach those things? John can preach Jesus' eternality because John knows Jesus is God and Jesus is sovereign. This is what we see in John 1.15, our verse for today. In our, in our text for today, at John 1, you're in Acts 22, but John 1.15 is our text for today. And John has said, that Jesus existed before him. He's declaring his eternality. And in this text, we see John the Baptist knows two sovereign requirements of the incarnation that strengthen faith and increase obedience. At John 1.15, John the Baptist is telling us, we see from him, John the Baptist knows two sovereign requirements for Jesus' glorious birthday in Bethlehem, which result in bold witnessing for Jesus. What are these two sovereign requirements? Shall we not have these two sovereign requirements pinned into our minds so that we might be so bold for Jesus? What two sovereign requirements of the incarnation of Jesus at John chapter 1, verse 15 make strong, bold, obedient witnesses for Jesus? The first of the two sovereign requirements of the Incarnation that John knows so well. 
is that predetermination results in promises. Predetermination results in promises. That would be the first of two sovereign requirements of the Incarnation. John knows this. You need to know this as well. Predetermination results in promises, number one. Number two would be this, the participation of righteous people. The Incarnation of Jesus required the participation of righteous people. This is a sovereign requirement of the Incarnation. God has to sovereignly allow for the participation of righteous people at the Incarnation. John knows these two things happened at the Incarnation. The predetermination, that predetermination, the predetermination of God results in promises and the participation of righteous people. These are two sovereign requirements of the Incarnation that John is treasuring in his heart. He's holding on to them. Let's explore them. John knows the sovereignty of God through the past, over the present, and into the future. John knows that his allegiance to Yahweh was placed in his heart sovereignly by Yahweh as our God orchestrates the eternal symphony of his great glory and sovereign grace over time right down into the time of John the Baptist's birth. John's ability to preach the gospel with power in a direct result is, is, a, is should, I should say, is a direct result of knowing just how sovereignly in control our God is over all things, especially Jesus' incarnation and Jesus' scheduled gestation. For the strengthening of our own faith and for greater obedience out of us to God in the year 2023 and beyond, let's consider now just what John the Baptist knew about the sovereign requirements of God which surrounded the birth of our Savior. As we look at the first of two sovereign requirements of the Incarnation, we need to know, number one, predetermination results in promises. Predetermination results in promises. Brothers and sisters, what do you understand about predetermination? Does God have the ability for predetermination? Is God sovereign over all of the affairs of man? Does God predetermine only righteousness or both righteousness and wickedness? I'm going to answer that question right now. Since God is not the author of evil, it can only be said that he predetermines righteousness. That's what he does. He predetermines righteousness. Wickedness is the result of rebellion to God and his righteousness. God is not scared in the slightest about the evil that comes out of sinful men made in his image and likeness that he gave free will to. He's not scared about that at all. He's the creator of all things. Because he knows that his righteous, eternal predeterminations cannot be stopped or thwarted by any amount of sinfulness or rebellion of men. He is just that sovereign. He is just that in control of all things. You don't need any more proof of God's sovereign predetermination than what we read in Acts 2, 22, where you are now. Where Peter is preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost just days after Jesus ascended into heaven. Peter says in Acts 2.22, as he's pleading with them and preaching to them, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again and put an end, putting an end to all the agony of death since it was impossible for him, Jesus, to be held in death's power. Peter just said, God predetermined the horrible crucifixion of his own son where Jesus was perfectly righteous yet unjustly condemned to death by evil men who are responsible for their own actions. Now turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 1. God's predetermination in no way excuses the unrighteousness and evil of the Jews and the Romans who put Jesus to death. What does his predetermination prove? His predetermination proves that our God is sovereign. Sovereign over Jesus' death, over all the details of Jesus' life, all the way back to and including Jesus' sovereignly controlled birth. Even his gestation 
even his arrival six months after John the Baptist on purpose. Friends, how awesome is this? God predetermined in the incarnation of Jesus forgiveness for wicked sinners like us through Jesus' sacrificial death when he suffered the wrath of God for us in our place. Here is a God we can trust with our lives, the God who controlled all the details of his son's life, even to the point of his son's death. God's predetermined plan is essential to our reconciliation with him because of the events of the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve rebelled against him in Eden. Certainly God knew that they would rebel against him. He had made them perfectly in his own image and likeness. Which is to say, do you, do you have a desire in your heart and mind right now? Do you have a desire to experience the glory of God? Do you have that desire? Like you want to be done with this life and just go to heaven and be with God in his glory? Do you realize you will have that? He made us in his image and likeness. We are glory monsters like him. The problem is he's the only one that deserves glory. Your life is proof that you want glory. What salvation does is it says, oh, the glory is not for me. I need to stop that glory monster inside of me. I need to turn the glory over to Christ and lay this life down sacrificially for him. That's what this life is all about. Certainly God knew that they would rebel against him, absolutely. Because they're glory monsters and he was going to influence them with Satan. And he knew that they would take the bait. He knew that all along. Did that stop him? Did that thwart him? Did that change his plan? Not in the slightest. Does that make his plan for creation of Adam and Eve wrong and unrighteous? May it never be. Creation is awesome. The creation of life is good and right and just. And that's what he did in the Garden of Eden. Is your life wrong? Your creation of your children, is that wrong? Did you do wrong? No, making things, being a creator is right, good, and just. Not only is he our creator, he's our savior. Because he's sovereign. He's predetermined all of these things. And he holds us in the palm of his hand. Our rebellion proves, friends, the other charge against God and his sovereignty. Our rebellion proves that we're not robots. We choose sin because we love sin and we want to glorify ourselves. The same is true for the nation of Israel. God promised good for all of the descendants of Abraham and God delivered good to them. But in return for his good, they gave him evil and they wickedly sinned against our God. The Lord through the prophet in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 4 says, as you see in the text there in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 4, Alas, sinful nation, people heavy with iniquity, seed of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, they have forsaken Yahweh. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel. They have become estranged from Him because of their wickedness, because of their sin, the pursuit of their own glory. The Lord is right and just to be angry with men and women made in His image and likeness who continually choose rebellion and sin. Yahweh is glorified in His righteous justice and wrath just as much as He is glorified in His righteous long-suffering mercy and grace, in His kindness. He contends with the nation Israel, telling Israel how they must fix the problem of their rebellion and the stain of their own wickedness and sin. It's so simple, Israel. Chapter 1, verse 16. Do this, you wicked sinners. Do it. Look at it. Verse 16. Look at it. Wash yourselves. Purify yourselves. Remove the evil from your deeds before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, execute justice for the orphan, plead for the widow. You know, as I read that text, can you feel the tension of the Old Testament? There should be tension in your own heart. This is what God is telling Israel. That tension is thick, it's palpable, because you should ask the question, how? How do I wash myself? How can I cleanse my own sin? How can I cleanse the stain of my own sin? And this is what Israel was asking for themselves. This verse creates all the point of greatest tension that you could possibly imagine in the Old Testament. You can't do any washing or cleansing that will get your stains, your, the stain of your sins removed. There's nothing that you offer to fix the stain of your sins. 
Ah, but is there another answer, please? How can men have a right relationship with God then? How could it ever be fixed? Will the curse of Genesis 3 ever be lifted? When will the stain of sin go away? And when and how will the curse of Genesis be lifted? What about the promises of Genesis 3.15 that the seed of a woman would crush the head of the, of the serpent Satan? Did God predetermine relief? Did he predetermine a fix, a salvation for mankind that we might be reconciled to him? Absolutely he did. You see it there in the very next verse, in verse 18, where the Lord says, Come now and let us reason together, says Yahweh. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. We and all of Israel would ask, How, Yahweh? How can this be? How can this happen? Help us to understand. Tell us how the stain of our sins can be removed from us. The Lord is here foreshadowing and forecasting his predetermined plan. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 53, where Yahweh's predetermination is revealed in full. On your way there, you're going to pass by Isaiah 7:14. The Lord, through the prophet, reveals significant and special details of his predetermined plan when he says in 7:14, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is a major part of the plan. The detailed promises of God's predetermination, they only get better. We see it in chapter 9, verse 2, where the prophet declares that the glory of Israel will return, saying, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the land of the shadow of death, the light will shine on them. And then at Isaiah 9, 6, he says, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The predetermined plan of God includes the promise of the birth of Messiah, his son. This all sounds fine and good until you realize what this son, the Messiah, has waiting for him when he is born into this sin-sick world. You're in Isaiah 53, verse 1, where Yahweh's predetermination and promises reach their zenith. As Isaiah records the future words of the nation of Israel 700 years before Jesus' birth, in the not-too-distant future from now, friends, these Isaiah 53 words will be the words on the mouths of many in Israel who will look to the sky at the second coming of Jesus Christ, and they will only then understand the predetermined plan of Yahweh and the fullness of his promises when they say, as Isaiah records for them to say in Isaiah 53.1, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For he grew up before him, for, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore. And our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our peace fell upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but Yahweh has caused the iniquity of all of us to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, that for the transgressions of my people, striking was due to him. And so his grave was assigned with wicked men. And yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. But Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. That's predetermination. If you would place his soul as a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of Yahweh will succeed in his hand. 
That's predetermination as well. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide for him a portion with the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Penal, substitutionary, atonement. He took your place. Your sins were imputed to him so that a righteous God could impute his righteousness to you. Merry Christmas. Brothers and sisters, this is the predetermined plan and promise of God to remove the stain and guilt of our sins. We didn't make this plan up. This glory plan comes from the mind of Yahweh, and to it we say, Happy Birthday, Jesus. Happy Birthday, Jesus is the result of the predetermination of our sovereign God who provided the promises that let us know that he is 100% in control of everything. How many times do you think John the Baptist read through Isaiah's prophecy? Friends, God is long-suffering and patient with humanity, which allows him to save the souls of men and women that he has elected and predetermined to save from eternity past. Jesus knows the predetermined plan because he is God. He is eternal. He is sovereign. The details of Jesus' incarnation were predetermined and promised, which prove the vast sovereignty of Yahweh over all of creation. The very basis for our trust in Jesus as God must be that he is the one who is God, sovereign, eternal, in control of his own entrance into humanity. Would you turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 40? Isaiah 40. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Paul explains predetermination when he says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.9 that God has saved us. This is predetermination. God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our own works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ from all eternity, from all eternity. Similarly to Titus, Paul says in Titus 2.4, Jesus gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possessions, zealous for good works. In this thought that Jesus' salvation makes people zealous for his own good works, we come to the second of two sovereign requirements of the incarnation. The second of two sovereign requirements of the incarnation. First, we saw that Predetermination produces prophecy, promises. Second, we see the participation of righteous people. Let's look now at the participation of righteous people. The second of two sovereign requirements of the incarnation. If we're going to understand that Jesus existed before John the Baptist, we need to know that there was participation of righteous people that was required. And John the Baptist knew this, and he actually engaged in it. Before the flames of martyrdom caused Girolamo Savonarola's death, Girolamo Savonarola hosted a bonfire himself in the city of Florence in 1496, which is known as the Bonfire of the Vanities. Remember he was calling for reforms in the city? He called on every citizen in Florence to burn all of their vices collectively together. From pornography to cosmetics to cards and dice used for gambling. And the people responded to Girolamo's call to participate in this act of righteousness. The people work together to practice righteousness. Remember, friends, that Paul says in Ephesians 2, 10, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now here is sovereignty. Not only can God give his gift of salvation into a human heart to save that human heart by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, what's more is that he has already predetermined just how each saved person is going to walk before him in paths of righteousness powered along by his Holy Spirit. You see, if you're going to understand predetermination and salvation, you need to understand not only is God sovereign in the act of saving you, he's also responsible for all the good works that you did beforehand, or that you're supposed to do after because he planned your good works beforehand. He knows what you're going to do, just like he knew what John the Baptist was going to do. You're in Isaiah 40, where Isaiah after 39 chapters of judgment, begins, chapter, begins 27 chapters of comfort 
and the predetermined promises of God for rescue, redemption, and salvation through a suffering servant. The prophet Isaiah cries out in Isaiah 40, verse 1, saying, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak to the hearts of Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has been fulfilled, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received from the hand of Yahweh double for all of her sins. The voice is calling, a voice is calling, prepare the way of Yahweh in the wilderness, makes smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and let every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of Yahweh will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Brothers and sisters, these are the words of John the Baptist recorded 700 years before his birth to elderly and right, that elderly and righteous couple, Zechariah, and Elizabeth, not only was Jesus' incarnation highly scheduled and intentionally planned, so too Yahweh planned the gestation of John the Baptist so that John would be born precisely six months before Jesus. Our Father in heaven surrounded the birth of his son Jesus with righteous people. To accomplish the sovereign plan of God, Jesus was not alone. He wasn't the only one filled with the Holy Spirit. So John the Baptist himself was filled with the Holy Spirit when? in his mother's womb. Turn your Bibles to Luke 7, Luke 7, verse 19. Jesus' happy birthday celebration comes as a result of the participation of righteous people prepositioned precisely in the course of human history where Yahweh would get the most glory out of them for his son, Jesus Christ. Another way of saying this is elect lives matter, or you could say righteous lives matter. But we aren't going to make a hundred, hundreds of millions of dollars with a slogan, nor are we going to sign a contract with the NFL and have stickers on the helmets of every player with this slogan. It's not a winning slogan. The world doesn't want it. They don't want to hear elect lives matter and righteous lives matter. They don't want to hear that. But I want you to think about this. How many righteous people participated in Jesus' happy birthday celebration? How many? What names come to your mind of the righteous people who participated in righteousness in the birth of Jesus Christ. Mary, Joseph, Zechariah, Elizabeth, Simeon, Anna, the shepherds in the field. These were all present at the timing and birth of Jesus Christ. The 12 disciples would have been born around the same time as well. I would love to read for you Mary's Magnificat in Luke chapter 146 where she magnifies the Lord for giving her salvation, being himself her salvation. There's so much righteous participation in her Magnificat. Read it yourself, Luke 146. For now, you need to comprehend that God is in the business of orchestrating a symphony of righteousness to the praise of the glory of his grace through sinners like us, powered by the Holy Spirit. How blessed are those who get pulled into playing a part in this glorious symphony of God. Men and women, sinful as we are, get overwhelmed by the person of the Holy Spirit who causes salvation and gives us faith to believe God, which leads to our joyful, obedient participation with God. We actually please God by our participation in righteousness through the power of the Holy Spirit, all of which He sovereignly planned and prepared. Do you know this about God, that He is sovereign? Do you know that any righteousness that comes out of you, any God-glorifying deed that you've done over the course of your life did not originate in your mind but in His mind first? Do you know that? Do you know that your sinful thinking is all of your own, but even your sinful thinking and actions God can use to burden your sinful heart and will use to burden your sinful heart and stir you on to more righteousness and greater glory for Him? Friends, this is the sovereignty of God, which is proven by the incarnation and the eternality of Jesus, John 1.15. John the Baptist knew all about the sovereignty of God, but he was still a sinner saved by grace. He was still a man, complete with fear, worry, doubt, anxiety, anxious thoughts. You see there in Luke 7, 19, where Luke records the anxious thinking of John the Baptist saying, Summoning two of his disciples, John sent, to them, sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the one who is to come or should we look for someone else? When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for someone else? At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he granted sight to many who were blind. And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, 
The poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Brothers and sisters, how does Jesus respond to John's request for information about him? Is, is Jesus troubled by John's anxious thinking? Not at all. He's not troubled at all. He simply tells John's disciples to look and see all the righteousness and the glory of God that is happening just as God predetermined in eternity past. Moreover, all of the miracles that Jesus was performing were written 700 years before by John the Baptist's favorite prophet, Isaiah. To calm John's anxious thoughts, Jesus points these men to Scripture. Specifically, Jesus is quoting here from, John, from Isaiah 29, 18 and 35, verses 5 and 6. Go back and tell John, John, pick up your Bible again. Read Isaiah. Read chapter 29, chapter 35. Brothers and sisters, the participation of righteous people in the righteous deeds that God has designed begins with us drinking from the rivers of living water found only in his word. Our human weakness is strengthened when we read from Isaiah and all the other books of the Bible that our God is sovereign. He made an eternal plan for his glory, which included Jesus' incarnation and the crucifixion for the purpose of redemption and our personal salvation. It is not the case that we have a Savior that provided a general salvation and only the smart people get it. That's not the salvation that Jesus supplied. He didn't make salvation possible. He actually, on the cross, made salvation happen. And he is applying it to individuals, personally. It's the difference between a synergistic salvation and what the Bible describes, which is a monergistic salvation. John the Baptist's righteous participation as Jesus' forerunner ended with his head being cut off, but his life and message were so meaningful that his life and message are still with us today. Do you know Jesus' eternality like John the Baptist? Do you know the sovereignty of God like John the Baptist? Do you know if God has saved you, made you righteous in his sight, given you his Holy Spirit, and prepared good works from beforehand for you to walk in them? I pray if you don't know those, the answer to those questions, I pray this. I pray the Lord burdens your heart more than he burdened the heart of Lorenzo de' Medici. At the ripe old age of 40, the Lord took away the health of Lorenzo de' Medici. And for three years, that man was made to suffer from illnesses that took him to his deathbed where he had time to reflect on his life of greed. And it was there on his deathbed, oppressed by his sins and his suffering physically, that Lorenzo de' Medici called on Girolamo Savonarola to absolve him of his sins, shame, and guilt and bless him before he died. And so Girolamo Savonarola showed up at Lorenzo de' Medici's bedside. And he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to the man and his need for repentance, which is exactly what Lorenzo de' Medici needed to hear, but he still would not hear. Lorenzo de' Medici died in his sins on April 9, 1492, never once having participated in any act of righteousness while he lived on this earth. As a result, Lorenzo de' Medici will burn in hell forever. Friends, I plead with you, know that Jesus is eternal and sovereign. Know that he saves wretched sinners and repurposes their lives for righteousness in his namesake. And please know today whether or not that he has given eternal life to you and the calling, the right to be called children of God. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I thank you for this time with my brothers and sisters. And I do praise you for your sovereignty and your control of all things. It is so needful for my life. It is needful for every one of our lives to know that you hold all things together in the palm of your hand. Father, we're going to turn our time and attention to the cross of Christ, to a reflection that includes communion. I just pray for all of our hearts to meditate on the things that we've heard this morning, specifically on your sovereignty. Would you direct this time, would you comfort the hearts of this dear group of brothers and sisters in Christ as we come to the cross, the foot of the cross, as we come to the foot of the cross and we think on our own sinfulness and this incredible truth that you took on flesh to die on a cross to pay for our sins. Let this thought be with us now. 
as we take the Lord's table. In Christ's name, amen.